all getting very excited about the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, and all of God's fall holy days. They're, they're right upon us. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the uh, Day of Atonement, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the last great day. And we're very excited to come together to worship God. We're looking forward to worshiping him, to learning more, uh, to celebrating his holy days, and to learning a little more deeply what God is doing, what his holy days picture. They, of course, picture a great plan that God is working out on the earth, which we understand that he is creating a family. God is creating a family. And we're very thankful for that. It's very exciting. Uh, we understand that God's holy days picture his great plan and that we want to be part of that plan. And we're thankful that he's our father and that he is creating a family. <clears throat> Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3 to begin the sermon. And you'll see the Apostle Paul uh, made a similar comment in Ephesians chapter 3. Speaking of his ministry, the trials he had suffered, uh, the, 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 the work that God had called him to do, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, <clears throat> Paul makes a very profound statement, a very profound truth that he uh, recorded, that God recorded for us, that Paul uh, wrote here in, in Ephesians, something we understand which is a tremendous, inspiring blessing Paul makes this statement, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some uh, manuscripts don't include of our Lord Jesus Christ. They just say, for this reason, I bow uh, my knees to the father. So this is the reason that we worship the eternal God. This is the reason that we worship the father. And then Paul makes a little inset comment here in verse 15. Very profound comment, something we understand, a little inset thought. He writes, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God is the father of a family. And one of the awesome truths that we understand is that our father and our elder brother, Jesus Christ, are working a plan of salvation to bring us into that spiritual family and the holy days of course picture progressive steps in that plan and the fall holy days have their particular meanings and i'll touch on some of those meanings carried in the fall holy days in my sermon today <clears throat> but god is the author of a family let's turn to first peter chapter two <clears throat> this scripture is probably a little more familiar to us, 1 Peter 2, where uh, Peter <clears throat> talks about us being called into a, a spiritual household, a royal family, a royal household. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 1. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Paul is, Peter is encouraging us, he's exhorting the brethren to lay aside the carnal works of the flesh, <clears throat> uh, carnal attitudes. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, uh, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In the sermonette, we heard about the importance of removing sin, cutting out sin. 
laying aside these carnal, uh, sinful attitudes, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, the word, the, the gospel, the truth, recorded in the pages of, of our Bible, <clears throat> that we may grow, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And then he continues his, uh, what he writes, and Peter says, or writes, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected in, indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And we are precious to God. And one reason that we're precious to God, there's, there's many reasons we're precious to him. Uh, one of the reasons is that when he looks at us, uh, he, he pictures what we might become. Part of that family. Part of that glorious, eternal, spiritual family. And so, <clears throat> to paraphrase Peter, that we're being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, a holy priesthood, that's what we are, and that's what he wants us to become in fullness. Uh, so we are growing, brethren, and by keeping the holy days each year, the annual festivals, and of course God's Sabbath, and keeping his law, uh, we grow, grow closer to him, and we grow closer to that reward that we hope to attain at Christ's return, where we will inherit eternal life as part of that family. So when do we become members in fullness of this family? Now let's turn to a Feast of Tabernacles scripture. There's many we could turn to, but the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up, and you'll, you'll hear this scripture a number of times, I'm sure, wherever you go for the feast. So let's turn to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, and we'll begin to answer that question. But when do we become members in fullness of that royal family? Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 1. A prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. We look forward to this. <clears throat> we'll hear sermons and sermonettes uh, during the fall holy days, maybe during the Feast of Trumpets, and of course during the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, where we'll probably review this passage then as well. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king and uh, the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I was we were watching Mr. Ames's uh, telecast uh, this morning, and he went through Zechariah, some of the prophecies here in Zechariah. In verse 17, And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord, uh, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no, no rain and so forth. So we have here in Zechariah uh, 14, 16, and 17 that famous Feast of Tabernacles uh, passage that proves uh, that Christ will return and that the Feast of Tabernacles will be kept in the millennium. But what happens before that? Turn back maybe in your Bible back a page to verse 1. Verse 1. What happens before that? Verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is a different uh, setting, isn't it? This occurs before what we read about in verses 16 and 17. Uh, time of war, <clears throat> the day of the Lord, when Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And so I won't get into all the prophecy here, but half of the city goes into captivity. We see and read in verse 2. And then verse 3 talks about the Lord. Uh, this is 
Jesus Christ, the Lord, he will go forth and fight against the nations as he fights in the day of battle. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two uh, from the east to the west. Some will flee through it. When will we enter into the fullness of that God family? At Christ's return. At Christ's return. And so it's something to look forward to. We don't want to see the, the pain that the world is going through today. We, we don't look forward to uh, seeing the world suffer, but we do look forward to Christ's return when, that, when sin and that suffering will be put away. And we look forward to the time where uh, God's government will be established. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 as we begin the sermon and just touch on what will then begin to occur. Isaiah chapter 9, another familiar verse. Isaiah 9. So we read that Christ will return and uh, stand on the Mount of Olives, and that will will be the day of the Lord. He will establish his government. We turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. What will be the consequence, the good consequence, the wonderful consequence of this future event that we look forward to? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. Verse 6 talks about the Messiah, the, uh, the child. The government will be on his shoulder. He'll be called Wonderful and a Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 talks about his government that will be established. And we want to be part of that. We want to be in God's family at this time. Let's read verse 7, Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government... And peace, there will be no end. What does that mean? What does that mean? We're going to talk a little bit about this today. But, well, it means that there will be no end to God's government. Uh, God's government will never be overthrown in the future. Uh, There will be peace forever. What else do we learn here? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Speaking of Christ, our Lord, who will return, set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. We hope to be resurrected in the first resurrection into that glorious family and into a family that will govern the earth and the universe. And there will be no end to the growth and the happiness and the peace and the justice and God's law. No end. And it's really beyond what the human mind can fully comprehend. So God is working with us today on the Sabbath, during the annual holy days, because he wants us to grow closer to him, to grow in righteousness, to remove sin from our lives. But he also wants us to be zealous and passionate and inspired and joyful about these promises. That our Father, through Jesus Christ, will perform this, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So when we consider the Feast of Tabernacles and we're looking forward to it, we are going to go to different places where God has placed his name. We're doing that with zeal 
And we are doing that with zeal because we, we want to celebrate. And we want to worship God. And we want to come together as a spiritual family today. But there's also the, the human aspect of it, which is, is fine, where we're looking forward to, you know, nice meals and a nice hotel and, and uh, being able to spend our second tithe. And that's, that's good. That's good. That's the way God built the Feast of Tabernacles. He wants us to enjoy it. It's a celebration of what's to come. But compared to what is coming, how can we even compare it? We should be zealous for the fall holy days, all of them, all of God's holy days. But we should be more zealous for the government that God is going to establish. And to become part of that family that God wants to use to govern. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And he wants us to be part of it. I won't turn there, but it says in Luke 12, 32, that it's our father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's his good pleasure. He he is excited. He is looking forward to our becoming part of that family. Perfect. Submitting under him and Christ. And working with him and Christ to bring peace and joy, justice. What we read about here in verse 7 upon the earth and eventually throughout the universe. Let's turn to one more prophetic scripture before we get into the body of the sermon. Revelation chapter 21. I'm sure you're very uh, inspired and and joyful and excited uh, that the fall holy days are upon us. And I know I am. We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles with our friends. We're looking forward to fellowshipping with our spiritual brothers and sisters. Maybe some that we haven't seen uh, for years at various Feast of Tabernacles locations. We're looking forward to the good sermons and sermonettes we'll hear uh, during trumpets and during the Day of Atonement and, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. We're looking forward to these things. But it needs to be very real to us. It needs to be very real to us that God is calling us for a purpose, not just to go worship him and celebrate at different places around the world. And that's good. But he's calling us to become part of his family, to rule in that kingdom as part of his family forever. So Revelation 21, verse 7 is another promise, another statement that supports this. And this is, of course, even farther, uh, farther out. This is uh, after the new heavens and the new earth uh, in verse 1. But we see here, verse 7, that he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be, uh, I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is tremendous. Mr. Ames will often talk about how we inherit, you know, ta panta, the all, everything. Everything seen and and unseen. We've been called for a great purpose. We've been called to become part of that God family that Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, we bow our knees before the Father and worship him. For this reason, because he's the father of a family. And so that's in a large part of what the Feast of Tabernacles is about, which we'll be observing uh, in the coming weeks. For a family to function well, for us to be able to inherit these things that we've just touched on, 
There's some things we have to understand, and there's some laws that have to be in place. For a family to function well, there must be godly government. We're going to talk about government today. And for a kingdom to function well, there must be government. We're going to talk about that today. The title of the sermon today is Five Keys to the Kingdom. Five Keys to the Kingdom. And as with most of these types of topics, there are other keys, but these are five that I thought would be helpful at this time that I would like to expound on. If we want to attain what we just reviewed in the beginning of this sermon, which is real, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, whether we stay faithful or whether we fall away, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will establish his government and will establish and create a glorious, wonderful family that we want to be part of. So we want to understand some of the keys that will help us to be able to attain uh, that promise. The first that I would like to touch on, and we won't spend a lot of time on this key, but it's fundamental, and I think all of these are, is that we must love God's law. We must love God's law. For sake of time, I won't turn to Psalm 119, verse 97, but hopefully that's a verse we can all quote. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all of the day. The first key to the kingdom that I want to talk about briefly today is to truly love God's law. Not just to say we love it, not just to read our Bible out of, out of, you know, obligation, but to love it and to understand that when we apply it, it works. It benefits us. When we apply God's law and the more we apply God's law and the more we live by God's law, the more we see how it works. And I'm always inspired when I speak with, uh, with older, uh, brethren who've been in the church for many years and they will often uh, be able to just talk about how they've seen God's law and applying God's law work in their lives. And it's brought them happiness and joy. Applying God's law is no guarantee. As a matter of fact, it probably won't uh, get you, you know, a, a brand new Porsche or a brand new Lamborghini or make you a millionaire. But it will bring you peace. And it is key number one to inheriting eternal life. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 29, I'd like to give a scripture or two that maybe aren't the ones we always reference when we, when we talk about God's law. <clears throat> Matthew 11, but the first key to the kingdom is to really love God's law. Every word of God recorded in the pages of our Bible. Of course, the Ten Commandments are the core of God's law. But God's law includes statutes and God's law includes, you know, the teachings of Christ and the principles established uh, in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. And let's. Let's just begin in verse uh, 29. We'll just break into the passage here of verse 28. Let's begin in verse 28. Matthew 11, verse 28. This is Jesus Christ speaking. What does he say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. 
Now, I don't have time in the sermon today, and it's not my intent to get into a long discourse about law and grace and the Protestant con- contortion and, and uh, really it's Satan's contortion of, uh, of, of, of how they describe and talk about law and grace. Um, but what Christ is talking about here, and hopefully you understand this, and you can read about it in our church literature and prove it for yourself, but what Christ is talking about here are those who are, who are burdened, who are encumbered by the world. Those who labor and are heavy laden under sin and the consequences of sin, what Satan is doing to the world. And Christ says, come out of that, come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble, gentle, lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Christ kept God's law. Christ taught God's law. Christ thundered God's law to Moses and ancient Israel from the mountain. God's law is a blessing. God's law is a joy. God's law protects us. God's law saves us from real pain, real burden. And it's key number one. Key number one to inheriting the kingdom. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. If we don't love God's law, if we can't talk about God's law, if we don't try to apply God's law in our own lives better as each year goes by, uh, then we don't fully understand what Christ is telling us here. We don't fully understand what God is trying to have us learn. And frankly, we're in danger. If we don't love God's law, we're in danger. Romans 7 And let's notice in verse, let's just notice in verse 12, at the end of one of Paul's thoughts here, he's talking about don't covet and commandments that bring life and and, um, other practices bring sin. And then verse 12, he's talking about God's law. And he says, therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just and good. Key number one to inheriting the kingdom is to love God's law and to really know and believe, be convicted that it's good. It's not a heavy burden. It's good. It's just. It's holy. We want to live by it and we'll be blessed if we do. And then we'll learn how to teach it and to apply it. And that's one of the things God is looking for in order for us to become part of that family. How can he have us be in his family if we can't teach his law? So we know that. But daily Bible study, reviewing the church's booklets and reading the articles uh, that come out in the Living Church News and Tomorrow's World, studying our Bibles daily and applying those principles. Here's... A uh, 
you know, a, 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 a statement that's not going to surprise anybody here. We're not going to write an article in the upcoming Tomorrow's World magazine about something that you've never heard of before regarding God's law. Now, there might be an article about uh, a topic, right? Because prophecy continues and there's world events that are new. But we're not going to write an article that's going to talk about the book of, um, you know, of, uh, you know, Fred, right? So if we're looking for the new doctrines and, and the new teachings and we're tired of, of, of this, that's a problem. That's a problem. Ask God to help us to learn to love his law, to apply his law, and to and then to show us how if we do apply it, how it helps us, it benefits us. Now, God's word is rich, and I know you know that, but God's word is rich, and his law is rich, and the more you study it and live by it and practice it and talk about it and teach it to others, the more you'll be blessed. And that yoke, there's still a yoke. We're yoked to our Lord Christ. But it's a wonderful yoke. It's not a heavy yoke. That Protestant lie and what was told to us a few decades, a couple decades ago, uh, that the law is a burden, that's, that's not what Jesus Christ says. Key number one to the kingdom, love God's law. Key number two. Key number two. Learn and understand godly government. Learn and understand godly government. Learn and understand how godly government works. Learn and understand the pattern of godly government. Learn and understand the purpose of godly government. That's something that I think if, as you take notes during this part of the sermon, that I'd like you to look for the purpose. God always has a purpose for what he does. We need to learn and understand the structure, the application, how godly government works. But the function of godly government is for a purpose. God does not create things for no purpose. The function of godly government or governance is for a purpose. And just like God's law, it's wonderful, it's light, it's a blessing, it's holy, it's good. It's not bad. And, and that's another lie that's been foisted upon the world. And frankly, in the church of God, we've been uh, infected a little bit. We have to resist that um, because we live in an age. And Mr. Armstrong said this. Dr. Meredith says this regularly. We live in an age. It's becoming more and more Laodicean where the people want to do what's right in their own eyes. They cast off restraint. And so godly government and godly governance, which you'll see is for a good purpose to protect us. It's a blessing for us to help us. But that's sometimes seen as, well, that's old fashioned and heavy and kind of authoritarian. That's not the case. Don't be affected uh, by the mixture of truth and error out there in the world. Learn and understand God's government, how it works why it works the way it does, the structure and the purpose. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 18, and we'll just review some of the scriptures that help us to understand how godly government uh, is constructed, what what God's approach is to government and governance. But I'd like to bring out some of the reasons why, the purpose 
of why God has constructed uh, a certain type and approach to government. And it's a good purpose. It's a blessing. It's good for us. Exodus chapter 18. We have here, of course, the story of Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. We know that Moses was uh, basically wearing himself out. He had taken too much upon himself, trying to judge all of the matters. Exodus chapter 18. Uh, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law uh, that the Lord had done uh, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship they had come upon the, uh, uh, that had come upon them on the way, how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses is kind of updating Jethro. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel. Jethro is very, very happy about that. Very, very, um, you know, he gave thanks to God. And then we come down further into the story. Verse 13, the next day Moses sits uh, to judge the people and the people stood before him from morning until evening so that they could have righteous judgment. So that they could have answers to questions that they needed a judgment based on God's law for their good. So that their household would function well, so that their neighborhood and society would function well, so the camp of Israel would function well. But we know that there was a little problem here, wasn't there? There was a little breakdown, and you, you know this story. This is, I mean, we, we teach this to the children. We, we all know this story. <clears throat> so Moses, in verse 15, says to his father, because the people come to acquire me, they bring me difficult, you know, questions and so forth. And basically, Moses explains, and Jethro sees that Moses has taken too much upon himself to deal with. The, 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 the congregation is too big. And he says in verse 18, you're going to wear yourself out. It's too much. You can't do all this. Then he gave him advice. And the advice was not to run negative, money-soaked smear campaigns that strive for the lowest common denominator and have people try to vote in entitlements and sin and legalize all kinds of sin. That was not God's answer to that question, was it? It wasn't let's establish a two-party system and let's have, you know, these two parties uh, smear mud at each other all day long and stack the court this way or that way. It also wasn't a one-party communist system, was it? We all know that God told Moses through Jethro to a point. And there were certain qualifications that God required. Verse 21, able men such as fear God. We've already eliminated and disqualified today's politicians. And I don't mean that to disrespect them. I mean that as a fact. Able-bodied men who fear the Lord, who fear God, who understand God's law. Men of truth, hating covetousness, make them the rulers. Godly government, godly governance, it's going to be a wonderful thing. And we could talk for a long time about how much better it would be if we didn't have to waste so much money and deal with such a corrupt and broken system. But that's not my purpose today, to spend a lot of time talking about today's problems. This is God's approach. 
Those who fear God, those who love his law, those who are able, those who are able. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. Luke chapter six, Luke chapter six, verse 12. And brethren, this is a truth that we want to hold on to. It's a truth we need to understand this understanding God's form of government. It's one of the keys that Dr. Meredith will give us when he says, you know, these are some of the things you want to look for when you want to understand, you know, where to where to fellowship. Where is God's church? One of the keys is godly government. God's church is not going to be uh, governed in a way that's that's contrary to what we see here. Or it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Here we have Christ selecting the apostles. Luke 6. And again, we know this passage. Now it came to pass in those uh, days he went out to the mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer. So this was another time where Jesus Christ wanted extra uh, inspiration from God. He wanted to know God's will. Uh, he was getting ready to make a very important decision. And so verse 13, when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And we know the rest of the story. He chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Verse 14, Simon, Philip, etc. He, he selected the 12 apostles. Again, it wasn't democracy. It was it was godly appointment. Titus chapter one. Titus chapter 1. Do you think that God will continue with this approach in the kingdom? Absolutely. So we need to understand how God's mind works regarding government. If we're going to be in the kingdom and participating in God's governance. If we're going to be part of that great family. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul exhorts uh, Titus to uh, go appoint elders in every city. And you'll see that there's a purpose for that. And it's buried right there in verse 5. That Paul should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Elders who just like we see recorded in Exodus 18... Fear God, are able, can teach God's law to execute judgment and justice, to instruct in God's word. You see, there were things lacking in the different cities. And Paul saw that and he wanted there to be order in God's church for the benefit of the people. We'll get to those scriptures in a minute. But for the benefit of the congregation, there's always a purpose. And it's been twisted and there's been lies that have been uh, made about, you know, God's government. It, it, it does not say put elders in every city to oppress and abuse and so forth. That's not godly government. That's not what the living church of God does. And that's not what we'll do in the kingdom of God. But God's approach of how God governs, uh, that's what we're reading here. And that will continue into the kingdom of God. There's always a purpose. And here we see to put things in order. Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the most important passages regarding uh, governments and governance and government in the church. Ephesians 4 verse 11. 
offices within the church. And these are, these are offices. Uh, they're functional, but they are offices as well, and they are offices. And, and uh, they just, they are. I mean, if you read through scripture, there were offices uh, within both the Old and New Testaments, offices within God's church. And so here in verse 11, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the offices, but again, I want to talk about the, the purpose. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So he himself gave some to be uh, po- apostles. Apostles, that's an office. Some prophets, that's underneath of that, that rank. Some evangelists. Some pastors. Some teachers, which could also be elders. And this is not the most important doctrine you have to understand, but over the last five or six months, I've actually had a number of conversations with a number of people here and in other congregations, and I don't know why it's come up, who have said that they don't understand, you know, what the ranks are in the church. Or are there ranks? It's not the most important thing for you to understand. But yes, there's ranks in the church. What's the purpose, though? What's the purpose? That's what I want to focus on right now. Verse 12. To serve you. To teach you. For me to be taught. For me to be served. For the equipping of the saints. For this reason, Paul bowed his knees before the father. The father of a great family. A family that you want to be part of. A family that God's ministers want God's people to be to become part of in fullness. The equipping of the saints. That's one of the main reasons, purposes for godly government. The equipping of the saints so that when Christ returns, you can be there. You can make it. You can become a God being. You can be resurrected into the God family. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, there's work in God's ministry. We'll talk about that later. For the edifying of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ. To build you up. If you're struggling with something, counsel with your local minister. If you need advice, talk to other men and women in the church that have been around, that are converted, that have shown those fruits of conversion. But go to your minister. Go to the local minister. And seek advice. Get counsel so that, and this applies to me as well. If I need help with something, I want to go to a minister. So that I can become edified, equipped, built up. Verse 13. There's a purpose, there's a goal. So that we all can come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. To the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ, no longer children tossed to and fro. Godly government and godly governance has a great purpose. And that purpose is to equip and to teach and to edify so that we can inherit eternal life in the family of God. So when I go to the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm sure this is how you feel as well, I'm excited because I want to hear the sermons that God has helped the ministers to prepare. Because I need to be exhorted and equipped and edified, and I'm going to learn. And we, I know that you feel the same way. And one of the most humbling things for me has been 
especially when I was out in the field as a, as a field minister, when I would go visit with somebody who'd been in God's church for 45, 50 years, maybe an unassuming person, uh, maybe not even the most educated person, uh, maybe not the most successful financially, you know, some older person retired, but they knew God's law. And sometimes through conversation and visiting, uh, I know I take away more from them than they would take away from me. They talk about how they've applied the law in their life and, you know, some aspect of a Bible story that I didn't fully understand. So we can all learn from each other. But God did put his ministers in, in positions to equip, to edify. I won't turn to a lot of these other scriptures, but you can just jot down in your notes. Um, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Which basically tells us that we need to listen to and obey what the church tells us to do. Uh, because the church is looking out for our salvation. Now, not if it's contrary to God's law. You, we, we understand that. If we say, well, go out here and rob a bank or go jump off a cliff, we don't do that. But we are to listen to the instruction of the church. Dr. Meredith is the presiding evangelist of the church. We have other evangelists in God's church. Those are high ranks. Uh, Mr. Weston is, is sitting here. Mr. Ames is out traveling, doing the work of an evangelist right now. Of course, Dr. Winnell, he's out traveling, doing the work of an evangelist right now. And there are others that have gone before that we, you know, we, we miss. We miss uh, Mr. Bruce Tyler, who was an evangelist. But they watch out or look over our salvation. But so do the elders. So do the pastors. Godly government within the church. What about godly government in the millennium. Let's turn to a few scriptures there. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 verse 26. You know that the pattern will continue. And the purpose will continue. Revelation 2 verse 26. <clears throat> Here. Jesus Christ is. Uh, speaking to Thyatira. But he makes a statement. That applies to all of us. He says. Uh, through John that uh, John recorded, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with the rod of iron as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also have received from my father and I will give him the morning star to those who overcome. We will rule under Christ. We will have power over the nations, and if needed and when needed, we will rule with a rod of iron. But the purpose will remain the same, brethren. It will be to equip, to edify, to uplift, to exhort, to teach God's law, to make righteous judgment. It will not be to harm and to oppress and to put down. That's not godly government. Now, if correction is needed, then God has corrected through the, uh, you know, through the, the, the eons or through, through the millennia. And if corrections needed in the millennium, then we might correct. We know rain will be withheld. We know that we'll have the power to correct if needed. But the purpose, again, is for good. What about godly government in the, in the kingdom? Just one or two more brief scriptures. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. We look forward to this, brethren. 
Won't it be wonderful to be able to fellowship with the apostles in the millennium and beyond? You might have that chance. I say might because we don't know. Uh, We hope we'll all make it. We hope we'll all be in the first resurrection. If we make it into the first resurrection, if we qualify, then we will have that chance. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. We read here. Oh, sorry, Luke 22, Luke 22, 24. My apologies, 24. There was a rivalry among them as to which of them should be greatest. And Luke 22, verse uh, uh, 24. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. So here we see Christ bringing in the principle about service, about uh, authority being, you know, there is a place for authority, but that the, the purpose here and the goal is that we are servant leaders, that we serve, not that we're oppressors. He, won't, he does not want oppressors in the kingdom. We continue, verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed upon me, that you might eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and this is speaking to the twelve apostles, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Won't it be wonderful to be able to fellowship and talk to the apostles? During the millennium and beyond and fellowship with them to sit at the table with them and with Christ and to enjoy being part of that family that God's creating. Won't that be a joy? You can jot down in your notes Ezekiel 37 verse 24. Uh, King David will rule over all of Israel. All of Israel, the whole house of Israel, won't that be a joy to be able to fellowship and talk with King David and to sit at that table, that spiritual table? Maybe we'll also manifest ourselves. Jesus Christ did that, didn't he? Maybe we'll eat, you know, real, you know, normal uh, physical food as well sometimes. But I think that the spiritual is going to be much, much more amazing than the physical. Won't that be great? You know, even worldly society strives for joyful family moments. That's one of the frustrations that people have uh, that surrounds Christmas is that the joyful family moments don't usually work out very well. Because people are going into debt. It's not God's desire to, you know, to keep Christmas in the first place. He's not blessing it. It's just all wrong. But there's that desire that people have to be with their family. And that's a good desire. But I think one of the reasons there's so much angst and frustration uh, regarding what happens around Christmas is that that desire to be with family, it kind of crashes into all the wrong things. Number one, it's pagan and wrong to 
celebrate, but number two, people are going into debt. It's all about selfishness. It's all about me. What presents am I getting? Who has the biggest tree? There's competition uh, built into it. There's a many, there's just many problems with, with it, but there's a desire to be part of family and it will be great in the kingdom of God to be part of that family and to be able to fellowship with David, the apostles, Sarah, Joshua, the angels, that will be great. Point number two was learn and understand God's government and the purpose for godly government. <clears throat> the purpose of godly government is to uplift, exhort, and so that we can develop the character, the personality that we need so that we can inherit eternal life. Live righteously forever in God's family. Point number three. Key number three to inheriting the kingdom, practice godly love in all things. Practice godly love in all things. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. We're already in Luke. Back a few pages to chapter 10, verse 25. This is key number three to inheriting the kingdom, to practice godly love in all things. You cannot apply God's law truly Unless you apply it in love. God's law is an expression of his love. Luke chapter 10. Verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up testing him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so... <clears throat> He replied, Christ replied, verse 26, what is written in the law? What is your reading of the law? What is your, what is your answer? What's your interpretation? You know, you're a scribe. Uh, you, you know the law. You answer. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And Christ, Jesus Christ, answered in verse 28 and said, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You will, you will experience blessings in this life. And yes, there are trials. God allows us to be tested. We understand that. But again, God's law, the more we live by it, the more we do have peace, peace of mind, and the more we do... Experience blessings. God's law is good. It's holy. It's just. It's good. But Christ was talking about something bigger as well. He was talking about living forever, eternal life. If we really, really practice God's law, which is based on loving the Lord, loving him, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is the expression of the Ten Commandments. Then that leads to big life, eternal life. And of course, you know, the scribe wanted to argue. Let's see another similar account. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 36. Point number one was about loving God's law. But point number three is a little different. It is about practicing godly love. As we live our lives, as we apply God's law, let's do it in love. Let's understand that God's law expresses love. Matthew 22 and verse 36. 
Matthew 22, verse 36. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It doesn't mean we do away with the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean we do away with the Sabbath. The Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, keeping God's holy days, that is how we show God that we love him. Keeping God's law is how we show our neighbors and society that we love our neighbors. God's law is based on and expresses love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Paul says, if you understand prophecy, but you don't have love, don't speak in love, don't practice love, don't understand love, it's pretty much worthless. Your knowledge, your understanding is pretty much not worth anything. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. We should be living lives that show God and show our neighbors that we are loving. We don't just keep God's law like the Pharisees just to, you know, have that form. We want to keep God's law the way Jesus Christ lived God's law. And that was an expression of love. Where we don't covet somebody else. We don't get wrathful toward, toward somebody else. Or we don't covet something. Where we don't cut corners on God's Sabbath and then say, well, we love God, you know, but we're going to cut corners on the Sabbath. That's the same as saying, well, I love my wife, but I'm going to cheat on her. Or I love my husband, but I'm going to cheat on her. You can't cut corners on God's law and really, truly be expressing the, the love that we should be expressing to God. You can't do that. Point number three, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. But point number three is that we need to understand the key of godly love, practicing godly love in all things. Point number four. I'd like to spend a little more time on point number four, which is to emulate Christ, who he was, and what he taught. Dr. Meredith wrote a really good article that uh, I would suggest rereading. It's online. Uh, what is the work of God? What is the work of God? It's a Tomorrow's World article. I was just skimming through that a couple days ago. And he talks about the work. The work. And he talks about how Jesus Christ and his example was for for us to do the work. Let's notice Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, verse 23. Key number four, to emulate Jesus Christ, who he was and what he taught. To emulate Jesus Christ, who he was and what he taught. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went about in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Also, very importantly, he healed the sick. He went throughout, you know, the congregations teaching God's law. But notice that he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The more we understand the work of Jesus Christ, the more we, we understand that it is our work today to do God's work, to preach the gospel to the world. 
Let's notice just a couple more brief scriptures. Mark chapter 1. Mark 1. John was put in prison and Jesus comes into Galilee. And what's really the first thing that we read about? Mark 1 verse 14. That that Jesus does. You know, verses 12 and 13 talk about uh, when when Jesus overcame uh, Satan, he was in the wilderness being uh, tested by the devil for 40 days. And then we come down to verse 14. John's put in prison. And the first thing we read about Jesus Christ is he goes into Galilee. This is uh, we were just read about this in, in Matthew as well. But uh, he goes into Galilee. And the first thing we read about is that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel. That was first and foremost in his mind. That was his work. That was his food. As it says in John chapter 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. Brethren, let's be thankful that that is the food of the living church of God today. There will remain a Philadelphian work until the end of the age. And that will be our passion. That will be what sustains us and nourishes us. That will be our food to do the work. Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, verse 15. It's probably titled the Great Commission. Mark 16, verse 15. Probably in your, your Bible, the header says the Great Commission. I find it very profound, very helpful, that after his uh, crucifixion, and, his res- and he was resurrected. What did he do? What did he do? He appears to the eleven. He rebukes their unbelief. And he tells them to get on with the work. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we pray that God will strengthen his work through us today. And that we can be more powerful. And that we can reach the whole world. That is the commission God has given to the church. It's it's a privilege, brethren, to be part of that work that you're part of today. That we're all part of. Just a um, a few stats, a few data points. And Dr. Meredith will encourage us. Mr. Weston will have meetings about how can we do things better. We want to do more. We understand that God will give us the power to make a greater impact when he's ready. But in the meantime, we're going to pray hard, work hard, ask you to join us praying hard to do God's work. Key number four to entering into the kingdom is to understand who Jesus Christ was and what he did. And a big part of what he did was God's work. Preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's what we continue to do today. In 2016, which is not over yet... Do you know that there have been more than 1,500 guests who have come to Tomorrow's World presentations? More than 1,500. It needs to be 1,500,000. I don't know if God will give that to us before the end of the age. But we can pray about it. We can pray God will bless his work. And I'm thankful that 1,500 people, more than that, about yeah, more than that, have come to guests, not members, guests, non-members have come to presentations this year. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We should thank God for that. Maybe God will call those people and their families 
We've released new websites. We're very thankful that we've been able to release a new Spanish language website. Uh, Mr. Hernandez has been very patient. Uh, we've been working on that for a long time. But that's important to reach the Spanish speaking world. We launched a brand new Dutch language website this year, a brand new German language website this year, a brand new Afrikaans language website this year. We pray God will bless that. That's the work of God. It's your food. It's my food. It's the food. I know it's Dr. Meredith's food. He comes into the office and that's one of the big things that excites him is the work. We're seeing encouraging trends on television. We've been looking at some of the data uh, regarding our television efforts. And uh, Word Network is producing great results, reaching new people. Pray about that. Word Network. We've been looking at that. And it's, just, it's, it's reaching a lot. It's reaching new people, a lot of new people. CW Plus is producing good fruits. Over in uh, the United Kingdom, we have a... Uh, relationship with a couple CBS stations, and it's producing good results. I can't remember exactly, but I, I won't give the number, but I know that we were, uh, Mr. Adam West mentioned something about uh, sort of a new, um, you know, a new level of, of new of new go-tos and new inquiries over in, over in the UK. Um, I'm really excited about Roku. You know, we were one of the earlier Christian programmers on Roku. When we first built the Roku channel, nobody knew what Roku was. I went to the NRB, and they didn't know what it was. And, uh, you know, we built a Roku app early on, and uh, that was a good thing. God blessed it. And we've done some advertising. About 45,000 people have installed our Roku app. And so some of those people are obviously new people, and they'll write for literature and so forth. Facebook, 220,000 people that follow our English language Facebook page. A lot of conversations happening. We're doing God's work. But we pray and we desire that we can do a hundred times more. I'm thankful for this, these stats and this growth, but we need to reach the whole world. But that is our food. That is our food. We pray that God will bless it, that God will use it as a witness. We pray that God will bring more people into the church, into his church. Do you know that this year so far there have been about 200 baptisms in the living church of God? That's wonderful. We wish there were more, but God's in charge. Jesus Christ was about preaching the coming kingdom of God. That was his food. That's what he told his church to do. And that is a key to entering the kingdom. If we are not zealous about this, praying about it, we don't understand that key, and we're in, we're in peril. We're in peril. We have to preach the gospel with a passion until we can't do it anymore. Let's turn to Matthew 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, verse 14. I remember when we went through the apostasy uh, back in the early 90s, and uh, I would get in uh, heated conversations with some people, and... I would turn to Matthew 24, 14, and we would, you know, I would say, look, they, they would say, oh, you know, we, we don't need to do the work anymore. That was one of the, one of the lies. We don't need, to do, don't need to do the work anymore. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
it, 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 it will be done until the end. Not until Mr. Armstrong's death. Not until, you know, somebody gets elected president necessarily. It will be done until the end. Now, there will be an end. There will be an end. There will be a time where we won't be able to go through doors anymore. It appears that in the future there will be a secession of God's work, a famine of the word, which we re-understand. We read about that. Turn to Matthew, um, Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. <clears throat> but we're not there yet. Amos 8. Talks about what we often refer to as the famine of the word. Where it appears that there will be a secession of the gospel of the work of God going out at the end of the age. But we're not there yet. And when this occurs, brethren, this is at the very, very end of this age. <clears throat> Amos 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. But we're not there yet. <clears throat> Let's turn to Daniel chapter 12 for a little more insight into when this most likely will occur. Mr. Armstrong wrote about this. But if anybody tells you the work is over, just ask yourself if these events have happened yet. Let me quote, as you turn to Jan Daniel chapter 12, let me quote from a uh, January 1980 article uh, by Mr. Herbert Armstrong. Where he wrote the following. And the title of the article is The Time We Are Now In. He wrote the following. Never before have we understood these periods of 1260 days, 1290 days, and 1335 days. So turn to Daniel chapter 12. We'll skim this real quickly. And he writes, Mr. Armstrong continues, he says, But it seems evident now a blessing is pronounced on us, God's church, who wait and endure until the 1,335 days, approximately 1,335 days prior to Christ's coming. Now, I will just add and inset my own comment right there and say that obviously part of waiting, part of enduring, is to be about doing what Christ wants us to do. Preaching the gospel. And if we are about our father's business, preaching the gospel, then there will apparently come a time where we will be blessed. God will say, you know, you've 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 fulfilled that requirement. And so you have a sequence of three events that occur here in Daniel chapter 12. And you probably have these noted in your Bible. They're a little bit out of sequence in the the, the way they're written. But first, in verse 12, you have those who come to the 1,335 days and are blessed. And I would add that it, a big part of qualifying for that blessing is that we love God's law, we teach God's law, we keep God's holy days, but that our heart is also in the work of God with a passion. And then in verse 11, you have the second event that is the abomination of desolation. And then in verse 7, you have the next event, which is the power of the holy people being shattered. And probably this is where we have the famine of the word. These events have not happened yet. God's work is not done yet. 
God's work through his church is not done yet. Every morning, please, let's pray that God will bless his work. We've had over 1,500 guests come to TWPs. I wish it were 10,000, 50,000. But that should not stop us from wanting to wake up every morning and pray hard that God will bless his work. We are doing the work of God. And I'm thankful for the growth God has given the church. Point number five, key number five. Key number five to inheriting the kingdom of God is to focus on the tremendous blessings that will come in God's kingdom. Focus on the tremendous blessings that will come in God's kingdom because it will be a time of wonderful blessing. Let's turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. This is a, a wonderful Bible study that you can do. What are all the prophecies that, uh, that are these promises and blessings that will occur during the millennium and then beyond the millennium? Ezekiel 36. I'm just going to touch on a couple. But focus on the tremendous blessings that will occur in God's coming kingdom, in the kingdom of God. That's key number five. Ezekiel 36. Verse 33, Israel will be redeemed, Israel will be blessed, and this is not speaking of just the Jews, but all the house of Israel, all the tribes of Israel. Ezekiel 36, verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of laying desolate uh, in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, verse 35, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. It, it was wasted. It was desolate. It was ruined. The cities were, were destroyed. But now they're ha- inhabited and they're fortified and they're verdant. And it's like the Garden of Eden. Verse 36, and then the nations which are left all around you, they shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt and ru- the ruined places and planted what was desolate. Desolate, I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. As we read earlier, this will be performed by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And God will do it. God will redeem Israel. And again, not just the tribe of Judah. But the whole house of Israel, as it says in verse 37, and their men will be increased and they will be blessed and they will become a blessing to other nations. You think about what the Jews went through during the Holocaust. You think about what the Jews went through in the first century, what Israel went through under Egyptian rule when they were slaves. You think about what's going to happen to the house of Israel in the years to come. God will redeem Israel and will bless the whole house of Israel. And that is a beautiful thing that should really uh, stir us, brethren. What else will happen in the millennium? Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2. Pray for this. Pray for God's kingdom. Pray for what the Feast of Tabernacles represents. 
This is the reason that we bow our knees before our father. He's the father of a family. He's creating a family. He wants us in the family. He wants us to rule under Christ in the family. To bring joy and peace and good things to the earth. To redeem Israel from captivity. To teach God's law to the whole world. Isaiah 22 verse 4. He shall judge between the nations. He shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You know this this promise. Where the implements of war will be converted into implements of peace. And nations will no longer learn war. There have been chemical bombs dropped in Syria recently. In Africa recently. And you read about what happens. It is horrific. It is horrific. It is happening today. And not only in Syria. Not only in parts of Iraq. It's, it, and then you, you, you read about other things, you know, the rapes that happen and starvation. Because the nations learn war today, but they will not learn war anymore in God's kingdom. Pray for that. That's a blessing. Peace. You want to become part of the family that sits at the table with the apostles and Jesus Christ and David. And sits at that table and talks about how you're teaching God's law on this earth. And bringing peace to the nations of the earth. That, that, you talk about good conversations. Won't that be wonderful? But yet, that we can have that. That's God's desire for us. It's his good will. It's his pleasure to give that to us. That's for the purpose to which we've been called. To end that suffering. What other blessings will occur in the kingdom? One more. Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. We saw that Israel will be regathered. We see the nations will all be blessed. <clears throat> what else? Isaiah 27, verse. Let's just read verse 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 27, 6. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with its fruit. All nations, all peoples around the globe will be blessed because the king of kings will rule the elder brother of the family that we hope to be part of from Jerusalem. And peace will flow out from Jerusalem and Israel will blossom and bud and its fruit Abundance, physically, emotionally, spiritually, politically, justice, peace will fill the earth. Do you want to be part of that family? That is the reason that we bow our knees before the Lord to worship him, the father of a family. So God is creating a great family. Let's remember these five keys. Love God's law, love and understand government, practice godly love in all things, emulate Jesus Christ and what he taught, which is to do the work, 
and focus on understanding and really, really envisioning, really praying for those blessings that God promises. Because God is creating a great family and he wants you and me to be part of it.